How's everybody doing? All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Uncle Scotchy's Storytelling Extravaganza, the uh, 36th week in a row that we're recording this for a podcast. So thank Julio for that. Um, for those uninitiated, this is something that we do every Wednesday, and we'll continue to do every Wednesday for the rest of your lives. Uh, the rules are very simple. The stories have to be true, and they have to be about you. Um, if you are with some friends and you're telling stories to each other, I uh, just appreciate your consideration uh, during their stories. A lot of these are very difficult to tell. Um, and being between stories is a nice break to hang out to, so I'm not going to hit you story, 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 shut the fuck up, none of that. Just, you know, listen to the story, then you guys can chill in between that. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Breckenridge Bourbon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I've drinking a little bit of this during the 737 episodes. And uh, if you're hungry, in case you haven't noticed, the cheese stands alone is awesome. So, uh, so I appreciate your uh, attention to the stories. And uh, we had somebody drop out last minute. And fortunately, we have a storytelling regular over here. And he's been doing it for a while. And uh, I'm happy to bring him up to tell an impromptu story, ladies and gentlemen. The great Rio Chavarro, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for Rio Chavarro. What's up, fuckers? How you guys doing? I can't see you. I have the second, third, fourth Bukaki coming of Christ in my eyes. I see nothing. I see little lights on tables, and I hear your snickering. Hi, I'm Rio. Uh, thank you for coming out to Barnancy and giving up for Uncle Scotchy for having his storytelling night, because Miami needs more shit like this, you uncultured bastards. Yeah, let's all go to lift do cocaine off of, like, Little Wayne's dick. Okay. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story tonight um, that's going to kind of pick up where a couple of my stories ended. Uh, I've done this a few times. Uh, I like talking to rooms full of strangers. It's one of my favorite pastimes. Uh, so I'm going to pick up where I left off at one of the last stories, which is I'm a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Anybody know who Charlie Chaplin is? All right, there is some culture in the room. Um, I'm also an actor, because that kind of came with the package. I'm a, I'm a clown, I'm a mime, I'm a singer, dancer. I just do a lot of stupid shit in front of strangers, and they pay me for it. Um, I got back from Singapore in 2012. I did a two-year stint uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, basically training Charlie Chaplin's, working with the Chaplin estate, and uh, opening up Universal Studios Hong Kong and Universal Studios Singapore and Sentosa. It was fun. I got to work with a lot of really great people. I got to teach them who the fuck Charlie Chaplin was because they really didn't know much. And uh, I designed the costumes for them that got approved by the Chaplin estate and that was all good and everything. So I get back from Singapore and I have like $2,000 in my pocket because I'm an asshole. I'm Latino. I'm a poor ass kid who was born in Little Havana who just somehow ended up in fucking Singapore during this country's biggest recession. I don't know if you know about Singapore. It's one of the richest countries right under Arab Emirates. So everything was peachy and dandy over there. And then I came back to this clusterfuck called the US. Um, but I got to travel. I got to do a lot of traveling. Um, like any poor kid in Little Havana would never get to do. I did. I got to go to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Kuala Lumpur. And, um, 
Indonesia and I got to do mushrooms in Bali and smoke weed with a really small little capuchin monkey in Thailand. I got to go to that place where that stupid asshole shot that movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. I got to be a tourist in a place that looks just like Puerto Rico, except on the other side of the world. I get back in 2012 and I want to get back into theater. I want to get back into film and TV. I get a carpenter job at Coconut Grove Playhouse just as it closed down. Because I like building shit too. I have a Jesus streak in me. You can call me Jesus, even though my name is Rio. How many Latinos in the fucking audience right now? That's fucking awesome. Because it's Little Havana, and if there were no Latinos in the audience, I'd be like, yeah, this is suspect. There's got to be one fucking DE agent in this bitch right now watching people go to the bathroom, timing them. Anyway, um, I get back from Singapore. I want to get back in a theater and film. And I start auditioning for everything and anything that can come my way. I, I reconnect with my old agent for theatrical and commercial. And it's awesome. I'm auditioning like fucking... 700 times uh, a month, okay? That's a ridiculous number, but I am Latino, so I can exaggerate right? a little bit. I'm half Cuban, so that's the half of me that exaggerated. Where are my Cubans at? You know how we do. Pero, I don't know if you guys know what auditioning is like. It's like fucking asking somebody for a job by being a clown, basically. Uh, and you're going to interview after interview after interview after interview. So I, I got used to being said no to a lot, and you kind of get over it. Well, fuck you, you didn't like my guitar licks? Lick this shit, right? Sorry, there's just this badass guitarist in the audience. <laughs> I just fanboyed out. Um, I can't land a fucking commercial. Because I look like a criminal, let's face it. Um, so I'm not getting any commercial work. I'm okay with it. I started to land a lot of voiceover work and dubbing work. And that kind of sustained me. I got to translate scripts, adapt scripts from other languages into English or Spanish. And then I, I started to really work. And then I started to direct stuff here and there. Um, my first goal when I got back from Singapore was to shoot a Charlie Chaplin video based on his song, Smile. Anybody heard the song, Smile, that he composed? No, anybody seen the Chaplin movie with Robert Downey Jr.? Good, yeah, the, the song is in that. But originally, it's in the 1922 movie uh, in a composition in Limelight. It was also in The Circus. It was, he, he put that melody in a few different of uh, his productions in his movies. I start to shoot this whole Charlie Chaplin thing in Miami, in a three-piece suit, in a lot of makeup and glue and a mustache, and I got it done. I melted 18 times in like 30 minutes, and I had to reapply makeup and take my costume off and fucking squeeze the sweat out of it. But I got to do a six-camera shoot, and we got to go to four locations during Art Basel 2013. So within, within six months of me being back, I already produced this video. I even had a drone operator, which was one of the first badass drone operators that shot shit in Miami at that time. And since he had just gotten out of UM, I got him for 150 bucks for the day. Wow. <laughs> that shit's like five grand now. Um, <clears throat> I shot the video. It was great. I fell in love with a girl. 
It was a it was a flash mob style video shoot where I had enlisted for three months prior to the shoot all these performers that were actually like you and you and you and you just random people that wanted to dance around to Charlie Chaplin. I had an accordion player, a guitarist, a bassist, and somebody with the backing track with a big booming whatever you call it, right? Like a boom box, like an old school one. Um, and that was my baby brother, Michelangelo. And he was running around. And we went to four different locations during our Basel. And we shot it, and it was amazing. And then we put it in a big, fat, two-terabyte hard drive. And then it was lost. <laughs> yeah, like four months of work were lost. But I fell in love with this girl that was part of that flash mob. <laughs> I fell in love with this girl. Um, and she was a burlesque dancer, or she is a burlesque dancer. Anybody know what burlesque means out here? Yes. Yeah, it's like your great-grandmother's strip club. It's basically what it is. It's, there's, but cooler, with nicer costumes. But um, we started a burlesque company called Moon River Cabaret. Anybody heard of us? Anybody? We've been around for eight years. We produce shows. We actually produce shows, and we're going to produce a show here this Saturday. Um, but anyway, I digress. For eight years, our first gig actually was at Vino's in the Grove that is now a Books and Books. Anybody remember Vino's in the Grove? They have one in the Keys. They have one in Fort Lauderdale. They have one again in the Grove, but it's tinier. And they gave us the upstairs. And in that little upstairs, it was a speakeasy. It was very small. It had tinted windows. You really couldn't see it from the street, which is why girls could take off their clothes up there. You know? Because nobody could really see in. With the right kind of camera lens, you probably could have seen something, but it wasn't worth it, you know? What are you going to stand, by Taco Rico with a fucking camera and a zoom lens? Anyway, we produced a show there uh, for four years, and it blew up, and within the second or third year, we started to land other venues. We started to seek other places. Uh, we produced really big shows. We had circus, we had acrobats, fire eaters, fire dancers, people that shot ping pongs, balls at it, uh, and, and then we, so we did all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, we had really great shows. We won Best of Miami, Best Burlesque Company, two years in a row, 2016 and 17. That was cool. Uh, we were at the Vagabond Hotel on Biscayne. Um, there hadn't been a burlesque show there since the 70s, so that was cool. We, like, brought that shit back. Um, and we produced a lot of great shows all over the all over the whole Miami-Dade, Broward area. Um, we had a really big show. We had a really big month planned, March of 2020. We had like seven shows lined up, seven different venues. Uh, three of those bitches don't even exist anymore. Those venues are gone. Um, yeah, the pandemic did what it did, and you all know what it did. July 15th um, of last year, I left my partner. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can hoot and holler. It's cool. No, no, no. I just love her as a friend now. But it was literally like dissolving a marriage. You had to talk about what you're taking or what you're taking. It's not like we keep strippers in our pockets, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, hey... And this July 15th, I made it this, a year later, a year later, after, after we broke up, uh, we still kept producing shows. 
throughout the pandemic, some of them right here as a speakeasy where we had to like, you know, this is very secret, we closed the windows. And, and during quarantine, you know, we were bad. We were like Miami bad, not Florida, Miami bad. And we did shows here. And you know, we, we followed the protocols, you know? We sprayed you down at the door. We like took a thermostat up your ass. We did everything we could. We kept you separated. We kept you from making out with strangers so you don't die and stuff. And for those past eight years, I stopped auditioning. I just kept doing voiceovers and dubbing and some directing jobs and translating jobs here and there. But I, I quit doing what I love, which is theater and film and just acting in general. And so I, we broke up July 15th of 2020 and July 15th of this year, I made a decision. I said, I'm gonna leave Moon River Cabaret. I, I'm also one of the founders of Words and Wine Open Mic. Uh, we just turned 11 years old and we're at the Anderson now. And I told my brother, hey, I want you to take over Words and Wine. And I told my ex, I want you to take over Moon River Cabaret. And no sooner then I had done that within a week to two weeks time that I made that decision, I made that announcement. Fuck this, I'm going back to acting and writing and directing and focusing on the shit that really makes my cock hard. And then I fell in love with a girl. I fell in love with a girl, which is perfect, it all kind of worked out. Well, she's here in the audience staring at me. She shouldn't, she shouldn't. But it's funny, and this is the moral of the story. When you make a really hard life path decision, like a fucking hard left, the universe will fucking embrace your decision. If you're, if you're coming from here, from here, from here, just the, just the general center area, right here. The universe, and I'm not fucking like a crystal fondly fucking hobbit-footed goddamn hippie. I've done enough ayahuasca that I should be a hippie, but it did that for me. I, uh, I just want to tell you guys that this Saturday, I performed my last burlesque show as a master of ceremonies, jazz singer, stripper, dickhead. I have a PhD in... BS. And it'll be my last show here this Saturday in Miami. Sunday, this Sunday, I'll be at the Wilder and that's my last show there. But um, last week I found out I'd, I'd landed two roles that I'd been auditioning for and going to callbacks and callbacks. And, and I landed two roles. I got the news like a week or two from each other and it's like, if you really want to do what you fucking love in your life, open the fucking space for it. Throw that shit out if it ain't working for you. Kick that shit to the curb if it ain't working for you. And then just wait. I'm not like bended knee or like praying. Just fucking know that it's coming. And um, yeah. Do what you love, man. Open up the space for it, and it'll show up in your life. Thank you, guys. Give it up for real, ladies and gentlemen. And the art of entertaining self-promotion. Uh, well done. Expect nothing less from you. 
expecting nothing less from my friend with the pencil-thin mustache. Awesome. Good again for my friend Rio, ladies and gentlemen. Who's going to come to his burlesque show here on Saturday? Okay, tepid, but better. Not that, not that bad. Pew, pew, pew. All right, cool. We got a, uh, a new storyteller, ladies and gentlemen, just like a new car. She's got that new storyteller smell. She's ready to, to go. And uh, I'm excited to have her up, ladies and gentlemen. She came to check it out. That's, that's the way you should do it, by the way. If you ever hit me up to tell a story uh, or a friend of yours has, have them come to get comfortable first. And she did, and I appreciate that. So without further ado, Miss Valeria Nanetti. Come on up, Valeria. Hello, everyone. Hi. Oh my God, it's my first time ever telling a real story, so humor me, please. Humor me. So tonight, I decided that I wanted to tell a story about middle school and how I lost my virginity. So let's talk about that. So just a quick synopsis. So I went to a brand new middle school and I started in sixth grade. And um, I didn't know anybody there. So of course, you know, I immediately got bullied like, cause no, I didn't know anybody there, you know what I mean? So I made fun of the way I dressed, the way I looked, everything like that. And that was sixth grade. Seventh grade, it was like in the middle. Like seventh grade, it was like I got made fun of, but people knew me, so I have friends. And I think eighth grade was like my golden year, right? So eighth grade, my golden year, my sixth period class, there was a guy, let's call him Homie, okay? His name was Homie. <laughs> That's what I decided to call him. And, um, you know, we got close. Um, you know, we would hang out. He was like my friend, you know. And then um, there was a party that the middle school threw for Halloween. Okay, so let me, let me just sit down for this one second. Okay, so there was a party that they did in middle school for Halloween. And there was a haunted house there. And I met up with my friend Homie. And Homie... He was actually a football player. Like, he was very popular in school. Like, everybody knew who he was. A lot of girls liked him. Like, I didn't know this about him, but I found out later. Um, because I got, I mean, after, like, we did it or whatever, like, I got stalked. But that's another story. Anyway, um, so we went through the haunted house. And I guess my friend Homie thought that I wasn't a virgin, but I was. But anyway, so we went through the haunted house. Like, he was trying to, like, put his hands down my pants. It didn't really work. But you know how that goes, try to get fingered, but I didn't. Um, instead, <laughs> he almost made it, but it didn't, his hand didn't go all the way in. Um, he, we all remember those days, right? Getting fingered. Freaking it. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, those are, those are the days. But um, I, in fact, fun fact, I never really got fingered till my 20s. But again... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really get fingered in my, in my teens. It happened later in life, which I'm actually happy about because in my opinion, even though I technically lost my virginity in, in middle school, I really technically had sex when in my 20s. Now, who feels that, right? Like, who knows, what, what were we really doing when we were like kids and we were in our teens? We weren't having sex. We, we started having sex in our 20s. That's when the sex became real. But anyway, so... Me and homie. So we go through the, hall, the haunted house, and a failed attempt at getting fingered. And then um, we walk out, and then I guess, you know, you know how men are. They're just like, they won't give up when, you know, when it's time to get pussy or whatever. So he's like, oh, you know, can we go to the, can we try this again? Like, can we go somewhere and do this? And I'm like, where are we going to go? Where, where are we going to go do this? 
And he's like, the bathroom. So anyway, so here I am. And then, okay, so remember, it's Halloween. So I decided to dress like a thug. So I had, I had like boxers on, like a baggy t-shirt. And underneath my boxers, I had like a G-string on. Why was I wearing G-string in eighth grade? I don't know, because I don't wear them anymore. But I was wearing a G-string. And this is important for later, in the, later on in the story, okay? So he's like, let's go to the bathroom and have sex. I'm like, okay. So we sneak into the girls' bathroom. Remember, this is middle school. This is like after hours middle school, right? So we sneak into the girls' bathroom in middle school. We get into the stall, right? And I'm over here taking off my boxers, taking off my little, my G-string. And here comes the moment, right, where I guess the penetration is going to come. And then next thing you know, he busts out his dick. And his dick was like the biggest dick I've ever seen in my life. It was just like, bam. It was like, bam. He was a black guy. I don't know if that matters. But yeah, he had a huge dick. I mean, his dick was huge. I mean, he, he, he still makes fun of me to this day, the face I made. I, I saw that thing, and I was like, because that was like maybe my second penis I've seen at that point, you know what I mean? And this, this guy was hung, okay? And he had like that look, he was just like, yeah. And I was like, what's going on, right? And uh, when I look back on it, I can't believe that, when I look back on it now, I really didn't know what was going on. I was just kind of going with the flow, you know? I was like, all right, I'm taking off my pants, taking off my G-string, all right, let's see what's happening, you know? So the moment came, the big time came where he tried to put it in. And of course, it didn't go, it hardly went in. But, you know, it went in like a little bit. And he goes, you're a virgin? And I'm like, yes. He, re, you know, in, in, in a stall in the bathroom in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, what? And then my friend, my friend Carolina was there. And she was, she knew what was going on. She was like, Valeria, we got to go. And I'm like, this bitch. So anyway, so I hurry up and put my, my boxers back on and everything. We run out. We run out of the, the bathroom. And, um, and at this time, everybody's out there. Like, the whole middle school is outside. Like, just, I felt watching us. And, I, and um, I had to walk across the courtyard to get to where I was going. And then next thing you know, I'm halfway across the courtyard. And he goes, hey, you forgot something. And he takes out my G-string and goes, you forgot this. And I'm like, what the fuck? And that was my story, losing my virginity, guys. That was it. I know, crazy, crazy, crazy times. And then afterwards, um, just to say afterwards, um, I got actually stalked. I got called, I would, get, I would get stalked on the way to school because apparently this guy was very popular. Obviously, he had a huge dick, so I guess, you know, that made him really popular. So I got stalked. Girls were calling me like, how big is his dick? <laughs> but anyway, we became really good friends after that. That's why he's still my homie to this day. And that was that, guys. There you go. <laughs> you know her, Larry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so you never know what you're gonna get at the extravaganza. You never really know what you're gonna get. Ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I really like that one. That's on the podcast. So tell your friends. So if you want to know how it goes when you're in high school, now you all know how it goes. That's how it works. All right, so this whole thing, this whole platform was started during the pandemic uh, when I decided to do 
a one-man show, a blues opera, but I, then I realized they didn't know how to tell a fucking story. So I started listening to them, and uh, as I was recapping, Ben allowed me in the middle of Armageddon uh, to start doing this here. And uh, this is kind of one of the, this is one of the main stories of it. So I know you guys have been uh, pretty good as an audience as listening. For this one, is particularly hard to tell, so I appreciate you guys give uh, just a little extra time for me to tell this one, and uh, hopefully work through it, and we'll get through it together, okay? All right, thank you. You are your mother's son. That's something my father used to laugh and tell me um, when I would do something unusual um, or just kind of out of the box. He meant it in a loving way. My mother... She came into this world, Sandra Alva Atkins, and she left Sandy Garcia. Spoiler alert, she doesn't make it through this story. Um, my mother was what you could call a woman of substance. She had a very low threshold for bullshit, either coming out of her or coming at her. And she was frequently very on point, but she expected the same out of everybody else which is not really realistic, and it would get frustrating. And uh, she was in many ways a very, very difficult woman. But she literally had a laugh that could light up a room. I still remember her laugh. And I can't remember how many times that I've seen her meet somebody she's never met before and get into a deep, meaningful conversation that would change their life forever. Um, I used to hate bringing uh, girls that were friends of mine over when I was a teenager because they'd always wind up in her room, yeah, on her bed, drinking tea and just talking for hours while I'm in my room watching TV while she's in there with my friends and they would leave with like literature. She would fire up the copy machine and print out pages of Krishnamurti, Raja Yoga, get her pink and yellow highlighter out and they would leave with homework, you know. I'd be like, what'd you talk about with my mother when they're leaving? They're like, I, I can't talk about that. It's between me and her. I'm like, Jesus, this is my fucking mother. You can't talk about it. My mother and I were very close. Uh, she used to call me her little, uh, when I was little, you're my little Eric. You'll always be my little Eric. Um, doesn't matter how big you get, you'll be my little Eric. Um, she was a hardcore feminist. She used to drag me down to Miami Beach when I was a little kid to these marches, these now meeting marches, National Organization of Women. And uh, I'm like little, and it was me, her, and all her lesbian artist friends marching down the street of South Beach. Their arms are in the air, their fists are in the air, armpit hair under. I'm looking up, I'm a little kid. I don't know what they're so fucking mad at. But she taught me what they were mad at. And she was right. Um, when I was a little kid, I remember that she taught me how to, she was trying to teach me how to make fried eggs. I'm like, Mom, why I gotta make fried eggs? That's what you're for. And she was like, Eric, honey, one day I'm not always going to be here for you. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? You mean you're not always going to be here for me? What kind of shit is this? Um, that, was, that was hard for me. But she was a gallery owner. She owned an art gallery down at a place called Collie Square down south uh, when I was a little kid. And I used to spend so much time, so many hours after school and summer helping her hang shows because um, she had a really bad back when I was 
a baby. She got in a car accident. She got rear-ended. She had a really bad back. So I had to do, my father worked. I'm an only child. I had to do everything around the house. I had to cook, clean, vacuum. And, you know, none of my other friends had to do that, you know. And it was frustrating for me. But then I see her laying in her bed with a heating pad crying. You know, what am I going to do? Don't be an asshole. Um, she opened up a gallery. After about 10 years of that gallery, she opened up one in Wynwood. Like in 8990, she opened up a gallery in Wynwood. Now, everybody that knows about Miami and Wynwood back in the day it was very, very different. It was super shady in 90, all right? It was this dangerous place to be. And uh, I go to my dad, Dad, why, why is mom opening up a gallery? We would shut up and help your mother. That's all I would get from him. And one day, one night, I was helping her load into this gallery, and it was shady. I'm just like, Mom, what are we doing? Why are you opening up a gallery here? And she was a tiny thing. She looked up at me, she put her hand on my shoulder. I remember she's like, Eric, honey, one day there's gonna be galleries and restaurants and music and people all around here one day. And my fucking mom doesn't know what she's talking about. But she was right, she was on point. She was early as fuck, but she was, she was right. Um, some time passed, I moved away, I moved to California as I got older. She hired people to help. And um, it got too difficult for her to run two galleries. I don't know why, because she's a machine. And then she started working out of the house. We set up a gallery in the house, dealing from the house. And that got too difficult. And then she went to the doctor, and we found out why. At 59 years old, she got diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. So everything stops. Me, I had to move back from California. I had to help, of course. And um, caregiving somebody with Alzheimer's is like Vegas, Okay. How many people have been to Vegas? How many people have had to explain to somebody that hasn't been to Vegas what Vegas is like? You gotta go. You can't, you can't explain Vegas. Um, at first, she was pretty good. She was good at hiding it. Um, you know, she'd be with my father. I'd see her out at restaurants. She would laugh when she was supposed to laugh, and she wouldn't when she didn't. And, uh, it was a very secret thing. My dad said, you know, we're not allowed to tell anybody that she has this. It was like, for some reason or another with Alzheimer's, it's a dirty little secret that you have. You know, you can have ass cancer and talk about it Monday through fucking Sunday, but you can't talk about Alzheimer's. It was like a huge thing. And then the other thing he promised me is, is we'll never put her in a home. We'll deal with it as a family. I said, all right, dad, you and me, man. Well, here I am. So, um... One day I was at work, she had only two numbers in her phone. My number, she was still kind of functional in driving. And um, she had my number and my father's work number. And I got a call, I was at work, I was teaching tennis, I was on the court, and uh, she, I get a call, Eric, honey, I'm lost. I said, do you have any idea where you are, Ma? She says, no. I said, can you describe anything that's around you right now? She described this church, I knew the church. So I hauled ass as fast as I could there. And I pulled up there. She was probably sit down in front of the church and her little pink, uh, purple PT Cruiser turbo with the windows up, just with her hands on the wheel. And I saw her. I was like, it broke my heart because, I mean, she was such a strong woman. And she's sitting there waiting for me. And I went up to her and she rolled down her window. She looked at me and said, Mom, it's kind of confusing around here. It's cool. I get lost, too, so just follow me. We'll be okay. And she nodded. She didn't say shit. 
and we went home. But we knew at that point that something had been crossed. And sure enough, shortly after that, me and my father had to make the decision to take the car away from her, which wasn't easy because she's super independent. He was worried that given what she would do to herself, but we couldn't risk her hurting herself or somebody else. But she knew. She accepted it. She started staying in her room for long periods of time and writing in her journal, writing in her journal, her journal that I had to read all the time. Now, there were good days, too, throughout this process. You learn a lot of shit about how to deal with this. Um, you divert their moods when things get bad, when things get dark. It's almost like a, a train. You got to get them on a certain track. And I started, I started showing her a lot of different music. Music's a really good way to do that. And I was playing her different music. She really got into fucking Ben Harper for some reason, like super hardcore into Ben Harper. And which she's got like, I like Ben Harper, but he's got like four fun songs and the rest are fucking dreary ass love songs that go forever. But she loved those four songs, you know? And I was at the house once and she's cranking way super loud, Steal My Kisses by Ben Harper. And I go into the damn room and she used to be a professional ballet dancer and she's in the middle of the room doing pirouettes. Bah, snapping them perfect, one after the other. Time for me to tell the story. And, um, late. And, um, but she was there. Her eyes were lit up. She was smiling. And I was like, wow, this is awesome, but what the fuck do I have coming in my, with this whole disease? What's this disease about? And something else funny happened once. Looking back, it's funny. At the time, it wasn't. Uh, we were at line at the deli. And there was this huge dude behind us, this bodybuilder with jib shorts. And um, she goes up to him, and she goes, she grabs his dick and goes, woo! She flipped his dick up like that. I'm like, mom! <laughs> what do you say, you know? I'm so sorry, sir. And I get her, I'm getting her out, I'm like, we're out of here. She's like, what, he's cute! I'm like, mom, you can't do this shit. And I take her to the car. You never think you're going to have to have this conversation with your mother. Hey, Mom, you can't be grabbing guys by the penis when we go places. And she's like, thank you, Rio. And um, she's like, Eric, you got to lighten up. Sometimes, you know, you got to do this. Yeah, all right, yeah. Starts doing this little hand dance. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, Mom? She's like, yeah, all right, yeah. So I'm all, yeah. All right. Yeah, in the car, you know? And you know what? I fucking felt better. It's weird. It made it better. And uh, sometimes I do it on stage, make myself feel better. And, um, and I would do that to her to divert her sometimes when she was in a bad mood. And sometimes it would work, you know? And uh, sometimes it wouldn't. Now, the thing with Alzheimer's is this. It either plateaus or it gets worse. There's no getting better. So things would progress. She started getting into, they get into phases. That, that happened at the deli was a sexual phase she started getting into. Now she got into a wandering phase. She started leaving the house and we had to find her. That was fun as fuck. And uh, <laughs> so we had to change the locks. We had to make it so you needed a key on the inside as well. And we didn't give her a lock, obviously. So I'd be watching TV when I'm watching her and she'd come over and she's, Eric, honey, the door, I can't get the door. And there was this, I would divert her. There was a mirror that she had. I still have it. Mirror by the door with stained glass around it and a little dried flower in the glass. And I would divert her to that. And she would start talking to herself in the mirror for like 30, 40 minutes. She would just start talking. 
And, but it wasn't her normal voice. It was like this very youthful voice. And that's when I realized she didn't recognize Sandy in her 60s. This was like young Sandy talking to old Sandy. And it was creepy as fuck, but this exchange is diverted her from the door. So, um, but then she would be super acutely aware of her situation sometimes. She called me to her room one time. I remember going in there and she had her back to me. She was by her nightstand and she turns around and she had a just different face on. And she grabs my arm and she had long nails and went into my arm. And she looks up at me. She's like, Eric, promise me something. I'm like, what, mom? Promise me. If I get really bad, I can't take care of myself, you're going to find a way to kill me. I'm like, what? She's like, you have to. Your father will never do it. You have to be the one. Dead in my eyes. I said, I promise, Mom. You get bad, and I'll find a way to kill you. So time starts passing. You forget that, but you don't really forget it. You know, you push it out for a while, but you don't. Um, one thing you have to realize, here's a really good tip for dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's. If they said they did something, they fucking did it. If you say, Mom, what'd you do yesterday? She said, I was in Mexico and I had margaritas. She was in fucking Mexico and had margaritas. Don't say, no, you didn't. You're wrong, because that makes them unavailable. They retract, and you need them to be as available to you as possible. Cheers, everybody. Good times. No fingering yet. Um, but then, at the same time, there was this, still this little fickle Jewish lady that brought me up. I remember one time, this is good, we went to Whole Foods to pick out some di something for dinner. She wanted salmon. So I'm like, okay, mom, pick out your best piece of salmon. So she picked out some salmon, and we're in the car driving home. And she goes, Eric, honey, um, what are we having for dinner? I go, salmon, mom, we got some nice salmon. We'll cook it up when we get home. She gets real quiet. I hope it's not too salmon-y. <laughs> like, yeah, I almost drove off the road. Yeah, it's going to be really salmon-y, Mom. I'm doing my best here. If you take the salmon out of it, um, it's going to be pretty salmon-y. And then, like, little things you pick up, like, God bless Cold Stone. Whenever she'd be super, like, in a bad mood, I'd throw her a little ass in the PT Cruiser, and I'd take her to Cold Stone and pick out her chocolate devotion, her favorite flavor. It would shut her, exactly, it would shut her the fuck up and put her in a better mood. It's the best six bucks I ever spent in my life. Goddamn Cold Stone, holy shit, glad it was close. And she also started cussing a lot, which is weird. She never did. So one time we're in the kitchen, and she had this new trait that she picked up. One of the most annoying traits that she ever picked up was, we're late for some shit, we're making her late, we gotta be there, but she didn't know what the fuck it was. And it was really persistent. So my dad's like cutting something on the kitchen counter, I'm here. She's there. She's like, come on, you guys are going to come? We're late. You, you, you going to make it here? You going to make me late again or what? You know? And my dad's just, fuck this shit. He's ignoring, ignoring it. I'm over here. I'm like, come on, what were we late for? What are we going to do? She's like, you know, we had to be there an hour ago. And she takes her finger like, like a gun, a little sharp finger. She puts it in my father's temple. She's like, but fucko here keeps fucking around and making us late and we're going to be late. I'm like, <laughs> we all start laughing. Even her. I'm like, did you just call my father fucko? I've never even heard you say fucko. You just called my father fucko. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good. It's like a sitcom of Alzheimer's right there. So you got to realize that caregivers and the Alzheimer's victim, not patient, they're victims. And there's an ecosystem 
that they live in. And in some ways, the caregivers have it worse than the victim because they get to do stuff and they get to forget it. We got to remember that shit and we got to live with it. And one time she got into a, started getting into a violent phase. She started attacking my father. She thought he was an intruder in the house. And one time she was in the shower and she threw him down and he cut his knee open. He was bleeding. And she left and he said, Sandy, why you do that? Why you throw me down, Sandy? Why you do this, Sandy? Why you do this? She comes in there. She says, Victor, I would never hurt you. I love you. I would never hurt you. Like creepy, like in a horror movie, you know? What do you say? And then me, I developed a new responsibility that I never thought that I would ever have or wish on anyone. She started when she went number two for getting to wipe. So my new job, number one son, is to do that. And the only thing worse than wiping your mother's ass is wiping your mother's ass and then she doesn't know who the fuck you are and freaks out. So I would be doing it and she's, oh my God, get off me, who are you? Get away from me. I'm their mom, I got toilet paper my hand. Mom, please, I'm almost done. Please, please, please stop. So, you know, and uh, she's looking at me and there's like a little bit of, recognition in her eyes, but she's not sure. She's fucking scared. She pulls up her pants and she leaves. I'm like, I'm a fucking mess. She comes up, what's the matter with you, Eric? You look like shit. I'm like, seriously, she said that. You look like shit. I'm like, yeah, phrasing. So, uh, so all this, as hard as it was on me, it was much harder on my father. The guy was a fucking monster. He would work and handle that and then come home to that bullshit. And he wasn't feeling good, so he went to the doctor. The doctor's like, um, you're not going anywhere. Um, we need to have an emergency triple bypass. You're going to the hospital. So he was gone, and then me, I had to sleep in bed as if I was my father with her every night. I'd stay with her every night. During her annoying phase of where the fuck we have to be, so at 3.30 in the morning, I would get a sharp fucking jab in the ribs. Are you just gonna lay there like a piece of shit or are we gonna go? I'm like, what, Bob, what? All night, and then my, the doctor had given me these like super low dose pills to give her, and I would try to, you know, look, take the medicine that the doctor gave you. And uh, I would try to, she's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm like, take it, take it, take it. You know, she would put it in her mouth, she would take it out, and I was up all night for two and a half weeks. I don't know how my fucking father did it. So, that being said, that's when I started realizing, you know, the family thing that my parents always pushed on me. Like, my, I come from Cubans and Jews, two very family-oriented groups. And my father, I always hated family functions. I thought they were fake as shit. I never wanted to go. My dad always tried to stress to me how important fa uh, family was. And at this time, I just needed some fucking help, man. Like, I was calling people and nobody would come. Nobody was available, with a few exceptions, but really, I just needed somebody to come watch her for a little bit so I could go to the hospital and visit with my father. Or God forbid I get to go to the beach for a fucking hour and decompress. But I got real bitter at family. And when my father came out of the hospital, I told him. He's like, Eric, it's just us. You can't depend on anybody. It's just us. So needless to say, that little thing about never putting her in a home wasn't really realistic anymore. We had to find a place. And luckily, we actually found a great place after a lot of looking. There was a home 
there's a house, a woman named Josephine from Spain. Her father, had, her husband had died of Alzheimer's that she opened up. And um, it was great. It was expensive, but it was great. There was basically just four little old ladies with Alzheimer's living there in this home with 24-hour care. It was like kind of like a little like forgetful Golden Girls vibe. You know, it was kind of cute. <laughs> and she was there, and which really made my situation hard because all of the months coming up to this, I remembered my promise to my mother. I had been trying to think about how I would kill her. because She was at that stage and get away with it. It was my promise. So, but my father, the car salesman, would show up at the place every day before and after work in his suit with his cologne on and they would sit together and they would hold hands. And a lot of times I could tell, I would look and she didn't know who the fuck he was sometimes. He was just this handsome guy that smelled good that was next to her and she would just smile. But then he would just live for those few moments that sometimes she would recognize him and he would have her back and they could talk. And that's when I realized I had, I had to break my promise. Um, the last two weeks of her life, she didn't recognize me. She lived close to me. The home was close to me. Um, but Josephine told me after, the last thing anybody heard her say, she was standing in the bathroom before she collapsed. The last thing anybody heard her say was, where's Eric? She said, where's Eric? And she collapsed. And I don't know if you guys know how a disease that makes you forget a lot of shit can kill you, but what happens is the brain starts telling the organs the wrong shit. It starts forgetting to tell the organs what to do. And in this case, it told her stomach to do the opposite, and bile and feces came out of her mouth. And they rushed her to the hospital. My father was with a friend of his, and he went, and I met them there. And uh, the smell... The smell is something I'll never forget. It was horrible. Um, so they had to pull the plug. Hey, pipe down for five seconds. I'm almost done. Hey, five seconds, please. I'm almost done. Five minutes. I'm sure what you're saying is fucking important. Just give me a minute. I preface this, all right? Thank you. It's not easy. I'm sorry, but it's not easy. Um, so we had to pull the plug. And I don't know if you guys know or not, but it's not like turning a fucking lamp off. It takes a while. There's actually, it's called a breathing pattern called Shane Stokes. It kind of mimics contractions in childbirth. She's out of it. She's laying there. At this point also, my father was done. His friend had to take him home. Once he pulled the plug and he knew she was gone, he couldn't anymore. He couldn't stand. He was taken home. It was me in the dark room in the ICU of South Miami Hospital and her best friend, Barbara, that they went to Miami High and graduated in, in 59. So God bless Barbara for her. So what happens with these breathing patterns is they're breathing, they're breathing, they're breathing, and then they stop. And then you're like, oh, shit, that's it? breathe again, and they're back at it. And it just happens, the breathing happens less, the non-breathing happens more and more for hours. And then she was gone. And Barbara left, 
And I felt nothing but relief. That wasn't her anymore. And I was glad that it was over. But one thing I kind of fucked up with was we had prepaid for the cremation truck to come. They're from Plantation. And you're talking about 2 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday in South Miami. And so I had to wait a while for this truck to come. If I, you know, if I knew, I would have done it right when they pulled the plug. And maybe if my mom dies again, I'll get to do this. But uh, that's not going to happen. So I had to wait for a while with her. So there I was in this room. I turned All the lights were off. There was some street lights coming in the window. And I was laying with my head on her chest and holding her dead hand and just talking to her, talking to her. And then the door opens and the nurse comes in. And she says, excuse me, Mr. Garcia, we need this room. I'm like, what do you mean we need this room? She's like, yeah, for another, for another uh, patient. Uh, we'll put her in the cooler until the truck comes. I'm like, oh, bad choice of words. No. My mom's not going any cooler. And uh, just so you know, whatever else you're about to say next, no. So I'll be here until the truck comes. So I'm laying there, and about 15 minutes later, the door opens, and just the light shines on me, and two young security guards walk in. And I'm there, and I look up, and I would pay any amount of money to see my face, because these security guards saw me, and they realized getting me out of that room was way out of their fucking pay grade. <laughs> that shit was not. They did the Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin, this, and they left me alone, and the truck came, and then she was gone. And so the funeral starts getting planned, and I couldn't wait. I was so fucking excited. I've been fantasizing about this funeral for so long. I really had. I was so looking forward to it because I couldn't wait. To, I had it in my head. All these people were going to show up. I was going to greet them, and then I was going to be like, thank you for coming. Um, where were you? Where were you when we needed you? Where were you when she needed you? How dare you come here, get all dressed up, eat the fucking buffet, and act sad. I assume you guys all have mirrors at home. Go home and look at them or don't, but either way, get the fuck out. That was my huge plan. But I fucked up, and I told one of my dad's friends, and he told my dad, and the funeral got canceled, which is probably better. We had a little reception for just the real close ones, the right ones. And my mom wouldn't have wanted me to do that. But she absolutely would have done. I mean, I'm my mother's son. She would have sent everybody to hell if it was the other way around. If she was me, for sure. Um, so lastly, last thing I'll tell you guys about. Thanks again for being in the audience. I appreciate it, people. I'm sorry if I yelled a little bit. So a couple months later, I was kind of super offended that my mother's ghost didn't come to me. I thought for sure, you know. Come on, you know, I we went through all this shit. We're so close. I didn't really have her at the end. And uh, did, did the ghost get Alzheimer's and forget where the fuck I live? What the fuck? You know, seriously. Until one day. One day I'm in my kitchen. I'm doing the dishes. And there's a dining room table right there. Again with this, right? And there's a, there's a TV, a flat screen TV over here and just background music, and I'm doing dishes. And I hear, Eric. And my heart stops, and my knees buckle. I'm like, fuck, she's here. <laughs> I don't even move. I mean, that I hear again, Eric. 
and then I look over at the TV. You know those little air fresheners, Airwick? <laughs> yeah, that's the commercial. That's how they did it, Airwick. And I'm like, oh my God, I just fucking fell down on the ground in my kitchen, <laughs> laughing and crying at the same time at this commercial. <laughs> and that's when I realized, I don't need her fucking ghost to visit me. She's in me, she's with me all the time. She's with me when things go bad, she helps. And when I do good, she's there cheering me on. And all I can do is just try to be the best man I can for the rest of my life till it's my time and I, and I get to see her again. Thank you for listening, I appreciate it. That was fun. No, thanks for listening. I feel a little bit better now. I was a bit, uh, a little, it was a rough day working on that one. So thanks again. Like I said, old friends, new friends, and people I haven't met, I really appreciate uh, the love and support for that one. That one really helped me out. Um, it's better than therapy. Um, now we got a comic. Going to tell a story. He's never been here before, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm excited for this. I will not blather on, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for the great Lonnie Talks. Hello, everybody. Hey, Dr. Dick. So, named after my grandfather. My grandfather's name was Lonnie Cox. Lonnie Cox was born sometime in the 1910s. I don't know exactly because the records are hard to find, quite frankly. He was born on an Indian reservation sometime in the 1910s. Um, five foot four, a small, diminutive man. Very fast, supposedly, quick on his feet. Very tan, very charming. He looked a lot like Clark Gable. Does anybody know what Clark Gable looks like? So that's what Lonnie Cox looked like. Um, Lonnie Cox was a lumberjack at one point in his life. Uh, he went and fought the Japanese. Uh, he came back somewhat of a hero in his community in Boyd, Texas. Um, worked construction for the remainder of his life. But uh, before he died, he had four kids. Lonnie, my uncle, we call him Uncle Pumpkin. Just wait. My Aunt Barbara, Aunt Dinky, Aunt Linda. It's hard because I think of them as their nicknames. I don't know their names first. Aunt Linda, Aunt Sissy, and my dad, Douglas Cox, Rusty. Rusty Cox. 100% true. That's real. My grandfather was a severe alcoholic. Uh, and I don't know that firsthand because when my dad was 11 years old in 1969, my grandfather died of cirrhosis of the liver. So this is my namesake. This is the man I'm named after. Um, before he died, he left quite an impression on my dad and all of the siblings. He lives as like this legend um, amongst my dad, my Aunt Dinky, my Uncle Pumpkin. All these people think of him as this legend. They still call him Daddy. 
my dad is almost 65 years old and still calls his dad daddy. It's a little strange, but then I think about it, my dad still is 11 years old and looks up to his father that way. So um, when my grandfather died, my dad was kind of left alone. Uh, his mother became manically depressed, didn't eat, didn't leave her room. Uh, my, his siblings were much older than him, so he was in the house alone, 11 years old, named Rusty Cox. <laughs> in 1960s Texas, in a house that was probably the size of this stage to the bar, if that. The whole house, okay? Uh, my dad grew up extremely poor in Decatur, Texas. So my dad learned how to be in the world on his own. Nobody really taught him how to be in the world. My dad says that his only male role model growing up, and this is also true, taught him how to fuck a chicken. So my dad had to figure it out. <laughs> Not how to fuck a chicken. My dad had to figure out. <laughs> Apparently that's pretty easy. That's a joke. I'm just fucking around. <laughs> One time I asked him, I was like, is the chicken alive or dead? I was <laughs> so my dad uh, figured out the world and his way of dealing with the world was twofold. Number one is become extremely fucking tough. 1960s Texas. You play football. You ride bulls in the rodeo. You break horses. You fight. That's my dad. He also stole. He lied. He conned. He used to write phony checks. So when he was 19 years old, he got arrested for writing bad checks. And back then, they used to give you the option. Do you want to go to jail? Or do you want to join the army? Grandfather's a war hero, right? I'm going to be like my dad. I'm going to join the army. This is the perfect chance. So my dad does. My dad joins the army, goes to basic training, does well. Goes to advanced infantry training, does well. Goes to airborne school, does well, goes to Army Ranger School. Does anybody in here know what Army Ranger School is? A couple people. Army Ranger School is considered the most difficult school in the entire military. It's harder than Navy SEAL School. It's harder than Air Force Parajumper School. It is the hardest school in the military. My dad hurts his knee and does not finish, but, but, my dad is assigned to the 2nd Ranger Battalion as a part of one of the most elite light infantry units in world history. My dad is a member of this elite organization. He doesn't have a little piece of fucking fabric on his arm. He wasn't a tabbed ranger, but he was a fucking ranger. But for him, that wasn't enough. So fast forward, my dad kind of absconds from the military. He just kind of runs away one day. Doesn't ever come back. My dad is excellent at getting out of trouble. Excellent. 
He turns himself back into the army, gets what's called a general discharge, almost never happens, not honorable, not dishonorable, a general discharge. He meets my mom a couple years later, they have me. My mom comes from extremely wealthy, not extremely, but wealthy Jewish family from New York. So these two worlds are now colliding and you have me, okay? <laughs> so I'm raised affluent. I was born in Pinecrest, I grew up there. I went to Jewish private school for most of my life. But the man who taught me what the world was, what it meant to be a man, is Rusty Cox. This army ranger, cowboy, bouncer, who lost his father when he was 11 years old. This is the man who is teaching me how to be a man. Right? Okay. So, when you're a kid, you don't give a shit about Michael Jordan, although I loved Michael Jordan. You don't give a shit about the president or astronauts. The only thing I wanted to be was my fucking dad, right? And my dad, this is important and it's hard to say, but my dad is a pathological liar. So nothing that comes out of my dad's mouth, for the most part, is true. The only thing that's true is when he says he loves me. That I know is true, okay? So remember that my dad is a member of this elite unit, but it wasn't enough. So my dad, not only was he a ranger, but he was a Green Beret, he wasn't. And not only was he a Green Beret, he was a member of Delta Force. Raise your hand if you know what Delta Force is. Very few. Delta Force, the only way I can explain it to people that have never heard about it is Delta Force is basically, there's about a thousand of them in a military comprised of a million soldiers, all one million soldiers look up to Delta Force operators. These are the guys that kill Saddam Hussein and you never fucking hear about it. The elite of the elite, above Navy SEALs. There's a reason you've never heard of them. And this, correct, you're not supposed to. <laughs> you're not supposed to. And this is who the small Jewish boy is looking up to. This is who I have to become because I don't have a fucking choice. Here's the problem. I am not a fucking killer. I'm a sensitive Jewish boy. Correct. <laughs> my dad used to call me mama's boy. That's what my dad was the thing. Mama's boy, mama's boy. And now I would tell Rusty, go fuck yourself. Because this requires a certain level of vulnerability. But I didn't realize that until it was not too late, but much later than what I would have chosen. But this is my fucking journey. So I play football. I was not good at football because I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't care enough. And to be really good at football, you have to do two things. You have to sacrifice your body 
and you have to be very aggressive. I am really neither of those things. <laughs> I have never been in a fist fight in my entire life. But this kid that's never been in a fist fight in his entire life is like, you know what I'm gonna do? I am going to be a sniper and I'm gonna shoot people in the head from really, really far away. This is what's going on in my mind. My dad is a gunsmith, so growing up I was surrounded by firearms, ammunition. This is the life that I grew up around. Uh, I am really fucking good at shooting. And that's hard to say. It's hard to say that, it is. It's hard to say that in today's world because you look at a guy like me, you think that, but I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to think that I'm really good at shooting and that I own weapons because I do and I am. But that's not all of me. And I, they're toys. I enjoy the hobby. I enjoy the mechanics of it. But I don't live my life through this lens of someone that walks around with a gun on his hip. I don't have one, okay? Sorry. <laughs> so I'm 19 years old, 19 years old, didn't play college football, but I go to college. And this is the time, 19 years old. Now's the time when you go to ROTC. Now is the time when you go to the recruiter. Now is the time but I didn't fucking do it. I didn't go. And it didn't fucking matter anyway, because six months later when I was 20, my dad, my best friend in the world, got in trouble with the law and he fucking left. My dad moved back to Texas in 2010. I've seen him twice since then. I used to see him Every weekend, I spent every winter break, every summer break, every spring break with my dad. My dad was my best friend. Gone. And he's like, why don't you call me? And I'm like, because you fucking left, dude. You call me. I'll pick up the phone. So my life starts spinning out. This thing that I thought I was going to be, I'm not being it. So what am I going to be? I have no fucking clue. So I move home from college. I start working at my mom's family business. My mom owned a staffing company. Actually, my grandma and grandpa owned a staffing company. Started in 1976. So I start working there. I worked there. My first day was November, let's say October 11th, 2011. And I worked there for the foreseeable future. I hate my fucking job. But what are you supposed to do? This is your birthright. You're the old, I'm the oldest child. My grandfather started this business. He passed it down to my mom. If it doesn't come to me, where the fuck is it gonna go? So I own that. I have to own this fucking job that I can't stand, but obligated. My life is going nowhere. I'm, putting on weight, I'm smoking weed, I'm getting really good at masturbating, I'm not doing anything in my life. No friends, no nothing. I didn't finish college. So all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. I, I felt, I was 22, 23, I felt 92, 93. I felt like my life was fucking over. I needed help. I was going to fucking kill myself. It was not a question. 
I was going to kill myself. So I went to get help. I went to a doctor. I had been in therapy, versions of therapy my entire life. I had, I've taken everything. I've taken Zoloft, Wellbutrin, Lexapro. I've taken everything you can fucking throw at me. This doctor says, one more. Just try one more, and if it doesn't work for you, we'll figure something else out. Okay. It's this drug called Effexor. I take it. Two days later, I feel like a new fucking person. I found the fucking drug that helped me, that's going to push me, just give me a little fucking zhuzh in the right direction. I am Jewish, yes. I love Yiddish, I'm sorry. About 18 months later, I get my degree, criminal justice. I don't use my degree, but I got it. I am the first Cox with a degree. So my life is like, okay, you know, we all have ups and downs, but the ups and downs aren't happening down here. Maybe now they're starting to happen up here, okay? My friend comes back into my life. My very dear friend comes back into my life. I hadn't spoken to him in years. And the reason I hadn't spoken to him is because he moved away. He dropped out of college, followed his dream, and became a professional artist. He's a painter. And he did the fucking thing. He goes to Art Basel and is like, drinking fucking cocktails next to Shepard Ferry, the guy that like drew the Obama hope thing. I'm standing next to Peter Tunney, the guy who owns the Wynwood wall section. His art is in the fucking exhibit and his name is on the fucking wall there. That's my friend. He did the thing that everybody pretends they're gonna do, but he fucking did it. And I'm dating this terrible girl at the time and one day he like pulls me aside and he's like, dude, you're not that happy. Like you're doing better. And I had convinced myself I was doing better because I was, but I wasn't there. And he saw it and I'll never forget this. He says, Lonnie, you're not that happy, but let me ask you a question. What is this insane, craziest wildest, most unattainable dream you can possibly think of. And I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, being a famous stand-up comedian, maybe? And he asked me this question. What are you doing in your day-to-day -day life that is going to make that dream come true? Nothing, nothing. It's just gonna spin in my mind and do nothing. The army, being this Delta Force sniper was a myth. It wasn't gonna fucking happen. I knew that, I would just regurgitate it to people. Oh, I'm gonna do this fucking thing. And uh, it, it. Being a comedian is going to a bar like this and taking a pencil and writing your fucking name on a piece of paper. It's extremely accessible, but it's extremely fucking hard. So that scared me infinitesimally more 
than jumping out of planes in Afghanistan. A couple years later, he is getting married. He invites me to California, where he lived at the time, for his bachelor party. We go to a place called Big Bear Mountain. Yeah. Big Bear Mountain is like what it sounds. It's an actual mountain, right? Like you go up this mountain. So we're smoking weed. We're eating mushrooms. Now, yes, right. For sure. But at the same time, like I explain this to people and they just don't understand. Mushrooms will change your fucking life. And it's funny, but it's also not. Mushrooms change my fucking life. It's real. It's fucking real. I got this tattoo right here because I saw a duck eating mushrooms and it changed the way I look at the fucking world. And I want to remember that shit for the rest of my fucking life. So shit's starting to fucking, mm, fucking break the fuck open on this fucking mountain in California. My friend comes in one day, there's a bunch of us, a bunch of friends. I am by far the fattest, the most unathletic of this group. They're all like California, like flip upside down assholes. So my friend comes in and he goes, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go mountain biking. Fuck. (laughs) Excuses. I can't do that. Too heavy. I hurt my back. I might die. And let me tell you something. You can legitimately die mountain biking in California. It is a real thing. Like, it is extremely treacherous. Extremely fucking dangerous. But the moment comes to like get on the, mo- on the fucking mountain bike at the rental place and I find myself putting my leg over the fucking bike. There's no air up there. It's like 6,000 feet. It's like hard to fucking breathe. And I am hev- way heavier than I am now at the time. And I am not skinny. But I'm going up the fucking mountain. I'm doing it. And then I fall off the bike, and off the mountain. For real. And then I get up, and I get back on the bike, and I keep going up. And then I fall off again. And I get back. And I fall off again, and I get back. And I fall off again, and I get back. And I fall off again. I fell off the bike about eight times on this trip. The most treacherous of which is when I stopped myself there was like a tree that had fallen over and the branches were like, yeah. And I'm like, shh, on the gravel. And I'm alone because my friends have like, not ditched me. They knew that this was a moment for me. And I get back down. I finish this treacherous journey. I mean, I am not kidding. My like, my shirt was ripped. My shoe, my foot was like coming out of my shoe. Um, 
And I realized as I'm like kind of headed down the mountain back to the bike rental place, I'm like, remember the mushrooms are still kind of floating around. But in my mind, I say to myself, man, those excuses that I was saying about mountain biking, they sound an awful lot like the excuses I was saying about why I wasn't gonna get on stage. People are gonna laugh at you. People are not gonna laugh at you. You're gonna die. Same shit. And here I am, I just did something where I could literally fucking die. And I didn't, right? I made it. 2010, this happened in 2017, the bike riding story. In 2010, I was smoking weed watching 30 Rock. Thank you. And I said to myself, that's what I wanna fucking do. They, all they do is they sit around a table, they write jokes, and they make each other laugh, and then at the end of the day, they get a fucking paycheck for that. That sounds fucking amazing. And every year, 2010, 2011, until 2018, my New Year's resolution, get on stage, do stand-up comedy. For eight years, I didn't do it, because I was too afraid. Eight years, 20 to 28. Three months after my mountain biking story, get on stage for the first time. That was three and a half years ago. I am a great fucking comic. And I'm gonna be better tomorrow, and tomorrow, the day after that, I'm gonna be better than that. I am going to be an amazing fucking stand-up comedian. I promise you that shit. Four months ago, I quit my shitty job. I work for the Miami Foundation now. I fucking do something of value in my daytime, and that daytime is gonna fund my fucking dream. Two months ago, I was doing a show, and uh, sometimes when I do a show, I like to like talk to the crowd, I like to interact, I like to get to know people a little bit. And um, I don't remember exactly how I got there, but this guy in the crowd, it turns out that several years, he's an attorney now, but before that, he was a Marine, infantry Marine, in a place called Fallujah. So for those of you that don't know, Fallujah is the bloodiest battle in American military history since Vietnam. And I applaud this man. I get the crowd to focus on him. I tell them to buy them drinks, that he is a hero, that he's a badass. This whole spiel, he's very appreciative. The crowd's very appreciative. After the show, I'm sitting outside, hanging out with my friends. The Marine walks up to me. He says, thank you so much for that, but I don't know how you have the courage to get on stage. That was the fucking universe talking to me. That was me telling me that I made the right fucking decision, that this guy that I thought was what a man was, was looking up to me and being like, you're braver than me. My name is Lonnie Cox. 
I'm gonna be fucking famous one day. I promise you that shit. Have a great night. Lonnie. Lonnie, stand up here real quick. We're gonna take a picture together. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Lonnie Cox, ladies and gentlemen. Tell him the truth. Quick picture. I really like the stories tonight with everybody, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to get a shot with everybody really quick. Hey, guys, thanks. Thanks to all of my storytellers for coming up here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Great job, buddy. Great job. And uh, if you know anybody who wants to tell a story, did you guys want to tell a story one day? Come on. Never. We'll see about never. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks for hanging out tonight. Thanks for listening to my story and all these other people's stories. Much love in the night tonight. It was a special night. Thanks for being here with me. Let's have one more drink, go the fuck home, and wake up and see what the fuck tomorrow brings. Thank you. <laughs>